Hi, I'm Chantelle. And I'm Matthew. And we're founders of Fifth Place, where our mission is to make the world a better place by enabling the how. Welcome, Welcome to, to our Emotions, Emotions Matter, Matter Really podcast. In this podcast, we explore everything about emotions, feelings, and what it is to become and remain emotionally fit. We interrogate the taboo around expressing and talking about emotions and feelings. We talk about all those things we want less of, like stress, anxiety and burnout, and the things we want more of, like sleep, calm and self-care. Hi Chantel, so what are we doing in this episode of Emotions Matter Really? <laughs> what are we doing today? Well, you know... It was World Health Day last week, and the theme for this year is Our Planet, Our Health. So, because our approach is couched in a holistic philosophy that encompasses me, you, the community, and the world, this includes also a specific focus on the environment, and we are part of the environment. Yep. Our work says that if we are healed and happy on the inside, then our outer world will be happier because we'll be able to connect better with ourselves, with others, our community, and obviously that includes our environment. And we even have a small offering, which we call lighter feet, that we dip into now and again. But we'll share a little more on that later on in this episode. Yes, that's a great idea. But back to World Health Day. So if you go to the World Health Organization's webpage about World Health Day, it reads as follows. In the midst of a pandemic, a polluted planet, increasing diseases like cancer, asthma, heart disease, on World Health Day 2022, the World Health Organization will focus global attention on urgent actions needed to keep humans and the planet healthy and foster a movement to create societies focused on well-being. You know that the World Health Organization estimates that more than 13 million deaths around the world each year happen because of avoidable environmental causes? And this includes the climate crisis, which is the single biggest health threat facing humanity. The climate crisis is also a health crisis. Mm, that is so true. And the webpage goes on to say that over 90% of people breathe unhealthy air, resulting from burning of fossil fuels. A heating world is seeing mosquitoes, my favorite insect, not, spread diseases farther and faster than ever before. Extreme weather events, land degradation and water scarcity are displacing people and affecting their health. Pollution and plastics are found at the bottom of our deepest oceans, the highest mountains, and have made their way into our food chain. And systems that produce highly processed, unhealthy foods and beverages are driving a wave of obesity, increasing cancer and heart disease, while generating a third, a third of global greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah, that's kind of something it's quite telling that the very thing that's supposed to nourish us is causing so many unintended consequences. 
And I also read recently that they've discovered minute forms of plastic in people's blood in some instances. And that's just shocking. So the World Health Organization's webpage also goes on to say that COVID-19 highlighted the inequities in our world. The pandemic revealed weaknesses in all areas of society and underlined the urgency of creating sustainable and well-being societies. And these societies must be committed to achieving equitable health both now and for future generations without breaching ecological limits. Mm-hmm. Essentially, the present design of the economy leads to inequitable distribution of income, wealth and power, with too many people still living in poverty and instability, while some of us can flit around in spaceships. Mm, We know that too well in our part of the world. A well-being economy has human well-being, equity and ecological sustainability as its goals. And then these goals are translated into long-term investments, well-being budgets social protection, as well as legal and fiscal strategies. Because breaking these cycles of destruction for both the planet as well as human health will require legislative action, corporate reform, and I'm reckoning that's a biggie, and individuals that will be supported as well as incentivized to make healthy choices. Mm. And that's something we really support, healthy choices on all levels. And wouldn't it be nice for mm, our government to have a brainwave and consider starting a well-being economy. That would be really something. So, you know, we really do salute the World Health Organization and fully support any and all strategies to make our world a better place. Mm. And if you don't know already, what's our mission, Chantel? Making the world a better place is our mission here at Fifth Place. So tell me though, what has caring for our planet got to do with emotional fitness? Well, a whole lot, as we will find out in this episode. Okay then, well, let's start with some of the findings. It's well researched that nature, being in nature, sunshine, fresh air, sea air, forest air, mountain air. (laughs) Just air, fresh air. Well, yes, unpolluted fresh air have a positive impact on our emotional Mm well-being. And on the flip side, it's also clear that Climate change, here it comes, air pollution, urbanization as well as noise pollution. These things can all have detrimental effects on both our mental health and our well-being as well as our emotional fitness. Mm, And we know how great it was to be out in the fresh air, in nature, um, just recently. It was a wonderful experience and really did a whole lot of good for our emotional fitness as well after Many weeks of working pretty hard. There's a paper that was re- was released in 2020 by the Institute for European Environmental Policy and IS Global that reviewed the available scientific evidence on the correlation between the environment and people's mental health and well-being in Europe. And in brief, let's go through some of their findings. I think we'll find this quite interesting. So this research study found that there is an emerging association between certain air pollutants as well as a range of mental health outcomes. Mm. There is also evidence that the consequences of climate change have a profound impact on mental health. And there is a positive association. And yes, when they say it like this, I think it's kind of word games because although the association is positive, the actual impact is negative. 
And this positive association is between air pollution and urban exposure. And it shows that the built environment directly affects mental health. Mm -hmm. Yes, and uh, yes, all those developers out there take heed. There is also a worldwide recognition of noise pollution as a major environmental hazard and is linked to accelerating and intensifying the development of mental disorders. Research widely suggests a positive association between environmental chemical substances and negative mental health outcomes. And a growing body of evidence shows that access to nature is vital for good mental and physical health at all ages. So really, we need to keep those green belts clear of development. And although this research was focused on Europe, it's highly likely that findings like these would emerge for any industrialized nations. Wouldn't you agree? I would. Um, and what also comes up uh, as a thought around this is the notion that our industrialization is potentially coming back to bite us because all these effects are as a result of mm. industrialization. So let's look at another survey. A survey done in 2021 found that 75% of young adults and teens feel frightened about the future due to climate change. Now this survey took 10,000, yes, 10,000 children and young people, and the age range was between 16 and 25 years. And these children and young adults came from 10 different countries, a pretty good sort of sweep, if you like, across the world, both developed and developing countries. There were a thousand participants per country. The countries involved in this survey were Australia, Brazil, Finland, France, India, Nigeria, Philippines, Portugal, and of course, the United Kingdom and the United States. And I say of course because, well, the impact that the United Kingdom and the United States have on the world from an industrialization perspective, I don't believe can be underestimated. Mm. Yes, and those um, young people that were surveyed across all the countries reported that they were worried about climate change. More than half reported feeling each of the following emotions. Sad, anxious, angry, powerless, helpless and guilty. And they said their feelings about climate change negatively affected their daily life and functioning. And many reported a high number of negative thoughts about climate change. I mean, for example, 75% said that they think the future is frightening and 83% said that they think people, people, have failed to take care of the planet. Yes, and they were also really negative about governmental responses to climate change and reported feeling, you know, really betrayed rather than reassured by their governments. So, I mean, that's really pretty, pretty damning evidence from a group of people who are actually the future our future in this world. So let's have a look at some of the mental health impacts of climate change and what these impacts really are. All right, well, post-traumatic stress disorder is one of them, PTSD, serious mood disorders, as well as depression. But the biggest one is a form of anxiety, and this anxiety is called eco-anxiety. And to be honest, before we started doing the research for this episode, I didn't even know that there was a special term for what is defined as extreme worry about current and future harm to the environment caused by human activity and climate change. Sure. Wow. So what is at the bottom of this anxiety? This anxiety around environmental issues can be as a result of experiencing or being at risk of 
or having people you know and care about, your loved ones, at risk of being involved in a climate-related extreme weather phenomenon. Things like a fire, wildfires, droughts, hurricanes, and Mm. so on. So it's like in this country, South Africa, when we experienced the worst drought in history in Cape Town in 2018. Yes, I reckon that would be one of them, because remember between 2015 and 2018, there was a decline in rainfall, and it resulted in Cape Town's worst drought on record. And these droughts resulted in massive water restrictions in Cape Town. I don't know if you remember, if you were ever in Cape Town during that time, but the surrounding areas effectively went to what they were calling day zero. They went to the brink of day zero, at which the municipal water supply would be terminated, shut off. But thankfully, day zero never came. And I find this quite telling. By some miracle, the heavens opened and it rained early that year. Now, Cape Town is a winter rainfall area. March is early for rain. Remember, we're in the Southern Hemisphere. And then the city's largest supplier of water, a local dam, saw an increase in levels from 11% capacity in the beginning of March 2018 all the way to 100% full in October 2020. Mm. Yes, I remember that time. Um, It really wasn't very pleasant for anybody who was staying in Cape Town. It really was quite anxiety-provoking, worrying about how much water you could use or couldn't use for that matter. And you're right there by the sea, which is really, you know, quite ironic. It was also in that year, though, in 2018, that because of the low rainfall, it uh, provided this fertile ground and we had those wildfires in the garden root area, specifically Neisner, Mm. um, that destroyed homes and the forests and livelihoods. And in fact, it was one of our first forays into using and testing shape of emotion with people um, and specifically people who had been traumatized by those wildfires. Uh, that we, um, we we did down in Eisner. We used what wasn't actually called Shape of Emotion yet, I don't think, but we used something um, that was similar. And at, even at that stage, in its embryonic stage, it was quite remarkable, remarkably useful in dealing with the post-traumatic stress. And there was post-traumatic stress um, experienced by those who were both directly affected by the fires and those who witnessed um, the destructive effects of the fires. Yeah, you know, I remember it was the beginning stages of what became Shape of Emotion. And one of the things that stood out for me was how there was trauma on both sides of the coin, both sides of the equation. Those that were affected struggled to manage their feelings and emotions, as well as the people that weren't affected. Things like feeling guilty because they were okay. Mm, they had missed missed the, the fires because those fires, they were like indiscriminate in that they would burn a house, but then it was the house next door was absolutely fine. Mm. Um, so, I mean, when I say indiscriminate, they didn't discriminate and yet they missed. It wasn't like they just went and burnt swathes of houses. So you actually didn't know um, how you were going to be affected. It was actually awful. No. It, looked like a, it looked like a war zone. It, well, yes, and it looked like, yes, that bombs had gone off mm. in all these random places and destroyed and leveled buildings. Mm. South Africa is, a, in general, a water, what's your, how do you say it? Water-stressed. A, a water-stressed country. So the threat of drought is ever-present. And there's always somewhere in the world that some weather event is causing death and destruction or some man-made accident 
like an oil spill impacting the environment. I remember growing up and seeing on the news, you know, not quite another day, another oil spill, but really oil spills were something that it just seemed like an unfortunate byproduct of producing oil. Mm. All those pictures of the poor birds covered in yes, black, oil gooey stuff. And how did I know about it? Well, here we go. <laughs> the media coverage. And nowadays, media coverage just seems incessant. It's overwhelming, constant, and of course, visual. And that visual reminder is evidence of our increasingly negative impact on the environment. Mm. Yes, and you know, in this country, although the threat of drought is ever-present, we also have these sudden downpours that cause flooding, and they have resulted in massive destruction and loss of life. And it's always a shock, and it's always unexpected, and leaves one feeling at a complete loss. And I think it's this feeling of being out of control that the damage is too big and cannot be corrected that has resulted in people starting to experience extreme or chronic anxiety. I think it just comes down to your sense of agency because, you know, if you feel powerless, it's going to be anxiety-provoking. Mm. And so what's really important is to cultivate resilience. Cultivate resilience both individually and at a community level. And experts say that this will be key to mitigating the mental health impact of climate change. Mm-hmm. And remember that climate anxiety, like most mental health challenges, or many mental health challenges, doesn't affect everyone the same. It will affect people who are more concerned with environmental issues or those that have personally experienced the impact of climate change. So mm-hmm. I guess the question then is, what can you do about it? What can a person do about it. And I believe that, you know, we have a mission to make the world a better place and trying to change the world is a noble and idealistic aim. I remember when we first started on this journey and I look back and think, "Mm, yes, very, very idealistic. And it can cause more distress than is good, particularly when it's as big as saving the planet. Mm -hmm. If the problems are too big and the damage is too far gone, And yes, it looks like people don't really care to the same level that you do. Well, you know, you can't really control what others do, can you? Mm, No, you can't. And, you know, I, from a personal perspective, litter is a big thing for me. I can't stand litter. And in this country, there is, there has been, and there still is, like areas where it's a real problem, Um, especially in under-resourced areas. You know, I would drive through these areas at one stage when I worked quite close and and in that part of the the town, I would get so upset when I witnessed the litter that it would just like capture my joy and freeze it. And there was so little that I could do other than I suppose I could lobby, I could educate. Um, But finally, I really had to accept that I couldn't clean up the world. Even in the face of education, there are those people who will still litter regardless for a whole variety of reasons. And, you know, I was like, why? Why don't they want to clean their areas and their environment? And so, you know, just doing some research, it just shows that many people don't understand or they underestimate the negative impacts of littering on the environment. People think that their individual actions will not harm society as a whole. And there's a belief, and this is a big one, that others will clean up after them. And as a result, they don't take any responsibility for cleaning up after themselves or looking after public places. 
Yes, there's a beautiful exhibition from a number of years back on the impact of straws. And I'll put the link into the description for this episode. But it went something like, well, it's only one straw. And yes, it's only one straw. But if you multiply that by all the people Mm. that use straws, it can become a problem. And it was a beautiful illustration, very, very vivid illustration of the impact that things can have on the environment. And particularly if we continue looking a little bit closer to home, we have higher levels of unemployment here. And if you also have very little opportunity to be employed, given what we've just been through, as well as the state of our economy, that is going to impact your sense of self-esteem and self-respect, self-worth, and you become bowed under the weight of surviving day to day. Your exterior environment, I think, is a reflection, you know, dirty, unkempt, uncared for, starved of love, this matches what's going on on the inside. So your your personal and individual's inner world is directly reflected into the outer world and then the community and so on. Mm. Yes, that's very true. So in my case, by focusing on what I could do so little about in terms of the litter and the and you know the just the mess. I was actually on a hiding to nothing other than just being completely dissatisfied and unhappy. What I had to do was I had to accept what I could influence and what I could not influence. And the first place that I really had to attend to, as always, and this is a mantra of ours, was myself, was my own self. I had to decide what I could put my energies into and what would make me feel like I was going to be doing something, even if it wasn't changing the world. I was reminded that every little bit does count, that despite what many think, every individual's actions do make a difference. And believing I have some agency really did make me feel better. And that's something we've done. We've really made an effort to sort of consider what it is that we can do differently. Um, and I think maybe we can just share some of the, the few things that we've done in our environment uh, just to hmm, lighten our environmental footprint. We say it starts with me. I didn't really used to pay much uh, or put much weight on the notion that individuals make a difference. I just thought, you know, in the face of overwhelming opposition, disinterest, industry, that you, you couldn't do anything. But I've come to realize through what we've witnessed with Shape of Emotion, that if every person does their little bit, every person tends to their kind of patch of the world. And whether that patch of the world is their home or their body or their inner world, that accumulatively, then the world will become different and better. It's not about a big massive campaign or trying to change the world in one big lump. Just do a little where you are with what you've got. And I'm sure there's a famous person that said that much more eloquently than me. <laughs> but we say it starts with me. Mm. That's our one of our key principles. And in this particular context, in terms of living with a lighter footprint, with lighter feet, as we like to call it, we started with food waste. And food waste is a problem here because, and when I say here in South Africa, 30% of all landfill waste is food waste. And so we decided we want to reduce our food waste and the impact of that in the landfills. And when we started out, although there was it was just the two of us, and I'm sure there's a song there, we started with this thing called Bokashi, Bokashi brand and Bokashi buckets. And it's a way of breaking down the food waste that you can then use in a composting format. 
Unlike traditional forms of composting, which use aerobic, meaning airborne bacteria to break the food down, Wakashi uses anaerobic bacteria as well as yeasts, so there mustn't be any oxygen. It's also very easy to do. It's a small, compact, and I've seen and know of commercial kitchens using it. And you can put any kind of food waste in there. Doesn't matter what it is. Cooked food, dairy, meat, grain, pasta, fruit, veg, off-cuts, peels, and it produces very little smell. It doesn't attract any pests or vermin. And then once the bin is full and ready, then you just dig it into the garden and it provides lovely compost. Mm. It's even some, something that somebody can do if they live in an apartment. Because even if you don't have a garden, you can take it to a place that can use it in a composting space, I'm sure. That's how we started, with two bins. Two bins and a tub on the kitchen counter for all the scraps. Uh, which we cut up and then disposed of, and we had no food waste. Yay! When we moved, because it was us living in a small space, we moved to a bigger space, and we adopted a worm farm. We were effectively given a worm farm and a compost heap. And so we modified our food waste program. The worms eat everything, but they don't eat citrus, pineapple, onions, eggshells, and chilies. So those continued to go into the bukashi. And then everything else went into the worm farm. And from a garden refuse perspective, anything that we cut, pruned, mowed, that went into the compost bins. Mm, compost bins, hey? I thought we had a compost heap. Now we have compost bins. Well, yes, those 42-gallon drums, 200-litre drums, we have 19 of them in various stages of composting. And I must say that most of what I read didn't really match my experience actually making compost and mm, yes well anyway that's a story for another day (laughs) but we really have this incredible space and I'm grateful that we've got the physical space to do it and we have a different kind of earthworm as well just on a spur of inspiration I took a handful of worms out of the garden threw them in the one bin well then throw them But put them in the bin and now they multiply because worms are these incredible creatures that can just multiply and multiply. And so we have this amazing compost that is recycling garden waste. Mm, Yes, because earthworms are the most efficient composters and they are different. So the earthworms for the worm farms are different to the ones that you put in the bins because the bins are like high. So those worms that dig and burrow can go into those ones that you find in the garden and the earthworms for the worm farms are those ones that are like surface eaters that is correct and we now have five worm farms that dispose of the food waste along with the 19 drums two or three bokashi buckets (laughs) and we make something called compost tea with our compost and it's just again another way of creating liquid fertilizer because what we came to research and and learn is that if you want to have good environment you need to focus on the soil Mm. you need to improve soil quality Mm. and that's one thing that industrialized mechanized farming at scale doesn't Mm. really do Mm. it almost from what we've seen does the opposite Mm. destroys the soil Mm. absolutely so we get great compost we make a compost tea as you say we have absolutely no garden or food waste and everything is recycled Yeah, pretty much. Um, The other thing that we do, not so much from a food waste, because once we've got that sorted out, then it's really just, and again, this talks to a process. You don't try and do everything in one big go. As I said earlier, you just take 
a little step, do what you can. So once we'd got into habits with the composting and with the worm farms and so on, we then looked at other areas where we could reduce our footprint where we could live with lighter feet and that was the recycling and not all product packaging can be recycled so we build what's called eco bricks which take a plastic soda pop or cold drink bottle it's got to be of a specific size it's two liters i don't know what that is in the imperial measurement and then everything gets stuffed in there pushed down and when it's full and, and hard it actually gets used as a brick to build things and I'll share an example of what these bricks look like as well in the description for the episode. Yes, a link to um, so that people can see it if they're interested. Um, our biggest challenge, of course, is that we need to get the two-liter bottles because we don't drink sugary drinks, and uh, nothing else really comes in two-liter bottles that we would that we would purchase. So our challenge is trying to find the two-liter empty two-liter bottles, but it's a challenge I'm quite happy to engage in. So, you know, we also generate very little waste now. And I mean, the, the stuff that we do put out, you know, in many countries, there are already um, requirements to recycle and, you know, split, the, split their garbage and that sort of thing. Um, it's a little bit like that here, but not quite on, on any extensive um, level. But still, our our amount of trash or garbage that we have is very little. We, If we have like one bin every six weeks, it's a lot. Yeah, we invariably take that long to fill up a wheelie bin. And, you know, I mean, you could argue that maybe we could do more, but I'm happy with as well within reasonable bounds. Somebody that was once very dear to me taught me about this whole concept of reasonableness and I think for a reasonable amount of effort, we make a reasonable dent in our waste and what we put out. Mm. So people might say, yeah, but it's just the two of you. So it's easy to manage. Well, it's not just the two of us. We have anywhere between two and three people here during the week. But the key thing here is we work the system, we refined it, and everybody's on board. Everybody knows what to do. They do their bit. And this is our way of living with lighter feet, our way of reducing our environmental footprint now it might not save the world but we are making a difference and we spread the word people when they hear that we have worm farms and do composting and the fact that we live in a suburb they're interested and we we share the knowledge we talk about it and we even have other people who can't do it because of wherever they live bringing their food waste and i know that we've extended it into family too mm, yes my parents and uh, my daughter and son-in-law use Bokashi bins too, um, successfully, so it's great. So, you know, it makes us feel better to do this kind of thing. Um, but what are other ways to attend to the distress and anxiety that, uh, you know, these worries around the environment uh, sort of solicit in us or elicit in us? I think that... It's important to remember that we are part of, and this might sound like a cliche, but part of the cycle, circle, web of life, however you want to call it. We are part of an ecosystem and we have a right to be in that ecosystem, not just to use it, but participate in it. And participating in it from a distress and anxiety perspective means get outside, get into nature, be in the sunshine, breathe the fresh air, connect with the plants, the trees, the birds, whether it's just by witnessing them, observing, listening to them, plant a plant. 
because being in nature will make us and can make us more grateful and aware of the beauty that's all around us. Think about all those flowers that just come and go, come and go, with no one to witness. You can get such a sense of joy from observing bees doing their thing. I mean, how much joy did we get from our bees? Mm. And this can make you more mindful of wanting to be more sustainable. And then creating natural habitats or being part of natural habitats, going to them like we did when we went into the mountains recently. And we can learn, and I believe nature is an amazing teacher, we can learn so much from nature, the cycles of nature, the flow of the seasons, the birth, life, decay and death, and how necessary they are. Nothing runs at 100%, 100 miles an hour all the time. Mm. I think our quarter-on-quarter growth, industrialized, competitive, economically-driven world would do well to take a leaf out of nature's book. Yes, we really, uh, we really are in a push, push, be in full bloom, be bountiful and plentiful all year round. That's sort of what the drive is. And uh, we are driven to produce more and more with less and less. And so, you know, it's actually no wonder that we're on the verge of societal collapse from exhaustion and burnout. It really would do us good to learn from nature and to respect nature and slow down. It's vital. And if you look at the most high-performing individuals, they're typically sports men and women. And they take breaks. Mm-hmm. They don't run, practice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They have a very structured regime, which absolutely includes periods of rest, periods of no training. And, you know, they're in alignment with these natural cycles. Being in alignment with nature and the seasons, the times when things are bountiful and then times when things are are sort of slowing down, like we are going into our autumn and winter, also calls us to come back to our body. And, and listen to our bodies and what our bodies are needing as well. And so I think that if we're more in alignment with the environment, if we can build a well-being economy in our own spaces, you know, I think that will do a great deal to um, make us more emotionally and mentally healthy and emotionally fit, you know, will do us a great deal of good. I'd like to concur or to agree with that because I think it's like a sort of dance and ebb and flow. What you do for you and then you do for the environment, the environment will respond and then you can draw inspiration from that and do a little bit more for you, which then means you can be more resourceful out there in the environment and it'll go a long, long way to mitigating these feelings of anxiety that come as a result of all this. Mm, mm, The overwhelm. Yes, Yes, related to the eco-anxiety stuff. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. So with that, we get to a favorite part of the episode, a favorite part of the podcast for me, which is to introduce you doing the poem. And there are so many poems about nature to choose from. And uh, I guess it came down to the season that we're in, looking at the title. We have chosen, you have chosen, the poem called To Autumn by John Keats. So take it away. To Autumn by John Keats Season of mists and mellow fruitfulness, close bosom friend of the maturing sun, conspiring with him how to load and bless with fruit the vines that round the thatched eaves run, 
to bend with apples the mossed cottage trees and fill all fruit with ripeness to the core, to swell the gourd and plump the hazel shells with a sweet kernel, to set budding more and still more later flowers for the bees, until they think warm days will never cease, for summer has o'brimmed their clammy cells. Who hath not seen thee oft amid thy store? Sometimes whoever seeks abroad may find thee sitting careless on a granary floor. Thy hair soft lifted by the winnowing wind, or on a half-reaped furrow sound asleep, drowsed with a fume of poppies, while thy hook spares the next swath and all its twined flowers. And sometimes, like a gleaner, thou dost keep steady thy laden head across a brook, or by a cider press, with patient look thy watchest the last oozings, hours by hours. Where are the songs of spring? Ay, where are they? Think not of them, thou hast thy music too, while barred clouds bloom the soft dying day and touch the stubble plains with rosy hue. Then in a wailful choir the small gnats mourn among the river sallows, borne aloft or sinking as the light wind lives or dies, and full-grown lambs loud bleat from hilly-born. Hedge crickets sing, and now with treble soft, the red breast whistles from a garden croft, and gathering swallows twitter in the skies. Ah yes, autumn with its particular appeal. This time of year really is one of my favourite. And so, from me Matthew, he is asking what you can do, what one or two steps can you take in your environment to tread with lighter feet. Until next time, bye for now. And whatever the season, until we meet again, be kind, be gentle, breathe deep the air, look to nature for your care. And from me, Chantal, bye for now. If you enjoyed this podcast and haven't already done so, please subscribe or follow. You can also find out more about what we do by visiting our website, fifth.place. Yes, that's all it is, fifth.place the number 5th.place. And to experience Shape of Emotion, try out an emotional fitness class, which you can do at no cost on Insight Timer. Look for Matthew and Chantel as teachers. Yes, an emotional fitness class is ideal for managing your eco-anxiety. Mm-hmm.